0: Hey guys, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Church, and I want to welcome you to our online teachings. One of our core convictions as a church is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. Now I know that for some of us, coming into a church building might be intimidating, it might be scary, and I get that. But I want you to know that there is always a place for you here at New Life, and that you were made for real in-person community. We meet on Sundays in downtown Wayland. You can check out our website for more information on service times. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through his word. Love you guys. Well, we are starting a new series uh, this week, and I'm so excited that we're starting this series this week because, like I mentioned, 2021 is the year of outreach. And my heart for this series, it's going to be a little bit of a longer series, I believe six or seven weeks, um, is to really dive into what it means to be a church that is for people. Because that's what it's all about, right? A church that is for people. And so as we begin today, I want to take you back to the year 1223. It was just a few years ago. Anybody born on that? No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) There was a guy... Living in Italy, named Francis of Assisi. Has anybody ever heard of Francis of Assisi before? If you grew up Catholic or have Catholic family members, you probably know him well. He's the, the statue that usually is holding a bird and has Bambi next to him. Um, Laura Timmerman called him Francis of Assisi, uh, which her words, not mine. <laughs> yeah, mine now, I guess. Uh, but Francis of Assisi, he did something that maybe you haven't heard of before, and this just this is incredible. I think this is really cool. What he began to notice in the, in the place that he was living, in the town that he was living in, was that people were having a really hard time trusting in Jesus and having a deeper level of faith. There were just barriers to them being able to understand who Jesus was, what he had done for them. And so he was seeing all of these neighbors and these friends and these acquaintances unable to trust in Jesus, unable to have a depth and a richness of faith. And so one day he decided that he was going to get some people together and he was going to essentially stage the birth of Jesus with real live people. And what Francis of Assisi is credited with is creating the very first nativity ever. But it wasn't with statues. It was with real, live people, a Mary, a Joseph, a Jesus, a donkey, a sheep. People didn't play donkeys and sheep. They had real animals for this. But he, he, cre- he created the first nativity, essentially. And something incredible happened when he created this nativity, His neighbors and his friends came to a deep faith in Jesus as a result of this. It made a huge difference in their lives. Now, this is not a Christmas sermon. I know we just celebrated Easter. I did ask Trent to sing some Christmas carols this morning, but he said no. This is not a Christmas sermon, so don't freak out. But why were these people so moved by seeing Jesus like this? It wasn't because of the nativity in and of itself. The reason that people were moved to faith is because for the very first time in their lives, they saw Jesus in their neighborhood. They saw Jesus as a real person, an Italian living in a real neighborhood. They could see Jesus in their own story. That is what moved them to faith. And if you think about all of the different depictions that we have of Jesus over the years, I mean, there are a ton of them. I brought a few of them here with me this morning if you want to go to some of those pictures there. These are some of the depictions of Jesus that we have over the years. If you want to go to the next one there, Ezra. On the left there, anybody's grandparents or yourself have a picture of Jesus that looks like that? I remember going to Chicago and doing ministry in the south side of Chicago, and they had a picture painted on the wall in their ministry of uh, a picture of Jesus on the right. All of this is because we have a deep need to see Jesus in our own neighborhood. We have a deep need, every single one of us, to see Jesus in our own stories, in our own struggles, in our own lives. And this isn't a new thing. This has been going on from the very time that Jesus came. In fact, John 1, the words aren't going to be on the screen here, but John 1 describes it this way. It says, In the word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory... Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. I love how Eugene Peterson translates that verse. He says, Jesus, the Word, took on flesh and bones and moved into the neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood. See, God understood that people, if they're going to be transformed and renewed and redeemed, they need to be able to see him in their own stories, in their own neighborhoods. There's a theological word that we use to describe this it's the word incarnation. And all it means is in the flesh, in fleshment. You know, as I think about Jesus' ministry, I always picture Jesus having dirty hands. Because if you think about Jesus' ministry, he was, he was a carpenter, he was a tradesman, he was a blue-collar worker, essentially. He did things with his hands, and I imagine him always stopping to help people and serve people and, and dine with people. I mean, we know he did these things. We see these in the Gospels. Jesus most likely always had dirty hands from serving people. So the title of the sermon this morning is The God with Dirty Hands. The God who got his hands dirty. And the question that I want to ask this morning is, if I were to walk down your street, into your home, into your workplace, into your family, and I were to ask this question right here, where is Jesus in your neighborhood? What would people say? What would people say in your neighborhood, in your community, in your workplace, in your family? Where is Jesus in your Neighborhood, because here's the deal, whether you realize it or not, your neighbors are already asking this question. Whether they know how to articulate it or not, your friends are already asking this question. Where is Jesus when the marriage falls apart? Where is Jesus when the world shuts down? Where is Jesus when pain and brokenness is all around? Your neighbors and your friends are already asking this question, and this is my fear for my life. My fear for my life is that possibly there are people around me who are not seeing Jesus at all because they're not seeing him through me. Are there people in your life who are not seeing Jesus at all because they're not seeing him through you? The reality is we need to see Jesus in our world, in our day-to-day, in our everyday struggles. So I love that this series is starting today because we can create a hygiene pantry and we can partner with a foster care ministry and we can do hand to hand. But if that is divorced from the very real calling of the church to incarnate Jesus in our world, we're just doing busy work. That's all it is. But when we tie this to the calling of the church to incarnate Jesus, to be Jesus, hands and feet and heart in the world, the world changes. Our neighbors change. Our families can change. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, open with me to Galatians chapter two. Galatians two is where we're going to uh, be this morning. And I want to look at an interaction. This is actually a interesting interaction that I don't hear talked about a lot, but it's probably one of my favorite encounters in the Bible. Um, it's an encounter between Paul and Peter. So both very devout followers of Jesus, very um, influential in the church. And this is what Paul, who uh, comes to Peter, and this is what he says. And by the way, Peter is referred to as Cephas in this passage. So same person, Peter and Cephas are the same person. So Galatians 2, uh, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that when Barnabas, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let me explain what's happening here. Peter is being super petty. Okay, so what's happening is picture a high school cafeteria, okay, and Peter, when the cool kids are not around, he's willing to eat with the kids that are overlooked, but as soon as the cool kids come around, he wants nothing to do with the kids that are overlooked, he goes and joins the cool kids at their table, Now, it's a bit more complicated and layered than that because what's happening here is all kinds of different traditions and histories are being merged as Jews and Gentiles come together and form one church together. This is an extremely racially loaded conversation between Peter and Paul. Extremely. And what Paul says to Peter is he says, You're not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. You're out of step right now, Peter. Now, if you're Peter sitting in this moment, imagine what this would have meant for your life. You're sitting around a table, and all of a sudden, like a pork chop has passed your way. Do you eat the non-kosher meat? Like, what do you do in that moment? You, you have laws from God that said not to eat this kind of meat. What do you do in that moment? You, uh, you have Gentile friends who maybe are not circumcised, you ask 40-year-old grown men to go under the knife at that point? I mean, what do you do? Your preferences for how holidays are celebrated and worship services are done are all flipped on their head. Everything about what you know about your faith is flipped on its head because you are merging two different groups of people for one gospel, one Savior, and inevitably things will always get messy when that happens. Things will get messy when that happens. And what Paul is calling Peter out on here is he's saying, Peter, there are people in your life, in your neighborhood, who are not seeing Jesus because they're not seeing him through you. They're not seeing him. You're not walking in step with the gospel because they're not seeing him through you. Is it your pride that's getting in the way of people seeing Jesus? Is it your, your preferences? Is it your convictions that are getting in the way of people seeing Jesus? Is it your reputation? Notice what Paul calls Peter here in this passage. What does he call him? Calls him Cephas. Now here's the deal. Paul wrote in Greek, the whole, everything in the New Testament that he wrote was in Greek, except for this name here. He doesn't call him by his Greek name, Peter. He calls him by his Aramaic name, Cephas. Now, if you know anything about Aramaic, Aramaic was a language that kind of resulted for the Jewish people out of Babylon, out of Babylonian captivity, out of Babylonian exile. It's the language that a lot of Jews viewed as kind of tainted because that was a dark period in their history. It's most likely the language Jesus spoke. And everybody in their world at the time would have known Greek very, very well. And the Jewish elite would have reclaimed Hebrew as their language. And so the only people that really spoke Aramaic during that time were very, very poor, uneducated people. It's actually the name that Jesus calls Peter by in John 1 when he calls Peter to follow him. He calls Cephas to follow him. Why would Paul do this? Because I think what Paul is doing here is he's saying, boy, (laughs) don't forget where you came from. You may be a big deal in the church right now, but don't forget that you have a rabbi who gets his hands dirty for the sake of people. Don't forget that you have a rabbi who shared dinner tables with tax collectors and prostitutes and Gentiles and all different kinds of people. Don't forget where you came from. Don't ever let your faith get so high and so mighty and so principled and so moral that you are not willing to get your hands dirty for the sake of people. That is what the Christian movement is about at its core. It is a movement that draws people to the person of Jesus. Christianity is not about principles first and foremost. It is about people being drawn to the heart of God. And so Paul is asking Peter, Cephas, how is Jesus showing up in your neighborhood through you? You know, as I think about our world that we live in today, I've been really struck recently, and I want to be careful how I talk about this, but I've been really struck recently at how sanitized we've become. Right, we go to restaurants and you're a lot of times in an igloo where you're (laughs) having contact lists, you're not even talking to the waiter that you're ordering from anymore. You go to the shopping store, check out at the grocery store and there's barriers between you and people, plexiglass barriers and we have masks and all this stuff and I'm not diving super into that because it's not controversial at all, but um, (laughs) the point that I'm making is I think we need to be really, really careful really careful that the world that we are living in is not desensitizing us, not sanitizing us to the point where we have lost that it is about people. That it is about incarnational presence with people and fleshment with people. I think Christians are some of the worst offenders of just turning the keyboard into a weapon and just sniping on social media like crazy. Guys, I'm a, there are times where I'm ashamed to call myself Christian because of what I see Christians posting on social media. We've lost the plot. And uh, in tough love, I ask you, church, where is Jesus in our neighborhoods? How is Jesus going to show up in our neighborhoods? Again, I'm not saying give up your convictions. I'm not even saying give up your preferences, but where and how is Jesus showing up in our neighborhoods? Where is he at? Are are there people in our neighborhoods? Are there people in our lives that are not seeing Jesus at all because they're not seeing him through us? Now, Paul raises the stakes here with Cephas. Cephas. He doesn't just say, okay, be nice to people for the sake of being nice to people. He actually gives Cephas a really compelling reason why this matters so much in Galatians 2 verse 20. And this is a well-known verse, but chances are you probably haven't heard this verse connected to this story, but this is the direct context of this verse. Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, the to the incarnated life. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In the most simple terms, Paul is asking Peter, Peter, who are you becoming? Are you becoming like Jesus? And what are you going to do about it? Peter, who are you becoming? And what are you willing to do about it? One of my favorite descriptions of Jesus' ministry happens in Acts 1. And what Luke says about Jesus' ministry is Jesus had a ministry of doing and teaching. Doing and teaching. So Jesus was always teaching, but a lot of the time he was teaching by the demonstration of what he was doing, right? He would express his teaching through the way he lived, through the way he lived, and then he would explain it through a formal teaching. One of the most famous examples is that night after night, Jesus would share his table with all different kinds of people, sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, and he did this so often. He was teaching by doing this that it raised such controversy in his world that he had to go into the parables of Luke 15 about lost coins and sons and lost sheep because Jesus had a ministry of doing and teaching. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to explain what I'm doing, and I believe that is the very calling of the church, doing and teaching. And I think what this world has caused us to lose the plot of is that we've, we do a lot of teaching, <laughs> We do a lot of lecturing on social media, but where is the doing? Where is the doing? Where is the getting our hands dirty for the sake of other people? It's one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to do a year of outreach this year. Because I want us as a church to encounter people whose life experiences might look very, very different than our own. I want us to get uncomfortable this year for the sake of other people. I want our faith to cost us greatly this year because we are the type of people that desire to give of ourselves for the sake of others. Now, here's the deal. There's a there's a flip side of this, too, because you can do, do, do and not become more like Jesus as a result. Both of those things can be true. And when that happens, uh, we're just divorcing ourselves from who the person of Jesus is. And we're just it's just humanitarian work at that point. For us, the two are always combined with each other. Who are we becoming? Are we becoming more like Jesus? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And what are we doing as a result of that? You see, people who have been crucified with Christ always get their hands dirty for the sake of other people. They always get their hands dirty for the sake of other people. And I don't necessarily mean literally, although in a lot of cases it is that. Figuratively, emotionally, we get our hands dirty for the sake of other people. If your version of Jesus only leads you to serve people you agree with, you're not following Jesus. At least, not the Jesus of this book. If your hands are more active on your keyboard than they are extended to the people in your life, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace, you're probably not following Jesus all that closely if you are dismissive of the pain of other communities who may not look like you or have the same life experience of you because it's not the same as your experience, I would say follow Jesus more closely. I know we don't like to talk about that, but that's directly what Paul is getting at in Galatians 2 here, that following Jesus closely is going to lead us to all kinds of uncomfortable places and uncomfortable situations for the sake of people. That's what it's all about. It's all about people. In fact, in Ephesians 1, Paul describes us as the body of Christ. This is what he says in verse 22. And he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How does God physically show up in our world today? Through the church. How does God serve the world today? Through his church. That's what this passage is saying. That God takes up residence in our midst so that when we forgive each other, when we have wronged each other, when we carry each other's burdens, when we when we serve each other in tangible ways, we become the actual hands and feet and heart of Jesus for the sake of each other. We are not called to just show up on Sundays and worship and lift our hands. Although that is important. That is equipping for us to be sent out, but we are called to be the church. The church is not an it. The church is a we, you are the church and we exist for the people outside of those doors that's who he exists for. I love how author and theologian Frederick Buchner put this. This is just like one of my favorite descriptions of who Jesus was as incarnated savior. This is what he says. The incarnation is kind of a vast joke, <laughs> whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. Think about that for a second. The one who laid out the stars, who knows the hairs on your head, Whose very voice commands light into the darkness. He came among us in diapers. Until we too have taken the idea of the God man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. Is Jesus showing up in your neighborhood because you take incarnation seriously? Is Jesus showing up in your community because you take enfleshment seriously? It was a couple weeks ago, my wife and I, we were driving down 28th Street. And so we were driving from Woodland Mall towards uh, 131, down 28th Street. And uh, we were beginning to approach 131, and we saw this guy uh, on the side of the road Running to catch the city bus. So the city bus was at the stop, and he was running. And you could tell from the way that he ran that he was, I mean, it was a a pretty bad limp. Like, I limp because I have foot issues, but, like, this was, he was was really struggling to get to the bus. And he gets to about the back door of the bus, and the bus just takes off. And you can just see the, I mean, he's just deflated. He just, like, falls down. He's super upset by it so my wife and all my kids were in the car. My wife goes, you're going to stop and you're going to pick them up. I said, no, I'm not. And she said, oh, yeah, you are. <sighs> Shoot, okay. But our kids have to get to bed. They'll be fine. We're going to pick them up. I was like, okay. My wife's a much better person than I am, but if you met her, you already know that. Uh, and so I was like, okay, we'll stop and we'll pick them up. So we pull into the parking lot and we say, hey, man, do you need a, do you need a ride? Where are you headed? And the moment that we that we ask that question, he just breaks down weeping, just falls on the ground weeping. And so I get out and uh, he comes over to me and just, he extends his hand and he wants to give me a big hug. Now, what was a wake-up call for me in that moment is my very first reaction to that was, but the virus, or but, but, like, like the, the barrier, right? The sanitation. And as I began thinking about that, I was like, what is happening? What has happened inside of me that even in this moment, me standing face to face with this guy who wants nothing more than to embrace, to, to offer a hug, I'm, I'm concerned about something that ultimately is secondary to that. And so we get in the car And uh, we start driving, and he um, has very difficult issues with speech, so we can't quite understand what he's saying fully, but we can kind of make out where he's, you know, pointing us to go, and he was about 10 minutes from his home, and the whole time, he just starts talking about Jesus, 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 he keeps saying the name Jesus, it's like, wow, like, this guy really likes Jesus, or he's putting on a show, and uh, so we're driving and we get him to his apartment. It's not in the greatest part of town. And we, we drop him off and uh, he, I get out and he goes, come into my apartment with me. It's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> but safety or the vi- like all of these different reasons, right? And uh, I was like, uh, okay, like I'll, I'll go into your apartment with you. And we stood in the middle of his apartment and he had tears streaming down his face, and he pointed to Bible verse after Bible verse, plastered all over his walls, all over his fridge, and he said, Jesus, Jesus. And in that moment, God shifted something in me to say if your faith is not actually about getting your hands dirty for the sake of other people, And I don't always mean literally. Sometimes it's relationally. Sometimes it's just being present with people or serving them in a different way. If you've lost that, you've lost the plot of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. At the very heart of it. And I know a whole lot of people right now who have fallen into complacency about people. And I got to tell you, our faith leaves no room for complacency about people because it's all about people. That's what it's about. Taking incarnation seriously means that when your neighborhood is asking the question, where is Jesus? They have an answer to that question. It's that family over there. Taking the incarnation seriously means that when someone we love is diagnosed, Jesus is showing up in the form of bringing meals and cards and love and support to them. Taking the incarnation seriously means that when something evil happens in the world and there are communities that are hurting, whole communities that are hurting, as the church, we don't shy away from them and try to lecture them. We actually move towards that pain, towards that hurt, and we be incarnationally present with people. Taking the incarnation seriously means that when a natural disaster happens to someone, earthquake or fire, we had another fire in Wayland just recently. That we don't step away from those things, that, but that we actually step towards them because that is how Jesus is experienced in our world today. When his church takes incarnation seriously enough to the point where it costs us something, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so as we close this morning, I want to just get really practical with us we're going to spend this series looking at three very intentional relationships that I believe every single person in the church ought to have. And so I want to encourage you, if you have something to write down, maybe your phone and you're taking notes, to write these three um, people down. And what I'm going to ask you to do is begin intentionally thinking about who God might be calling you to invest in intentionally, incarnationally, present with people over this next season. And these are not going to be just kind of one and done. We forget them. We're going we're gonna to look at them every single week in this series. The first one is someone who is far from God. Someone who is far from God. Someone who is lost. Brandon, uh, earlier in the service, talked about Alpha. Alpha is a fantastic thing to invite people who are far from God to. It's literally built for people who are far from God and who have questions about faith or don't know how to approach the Bible. Someone who is far from God. Number two is someone who is younger or older than you. So somebody of a different generation than you. I had the opportunity yesterday to drive a van full of high schoolers to um, Indiana Wesleyan and attend a conference with them. Hey now. (laughs) And I got to tell you guys, we have some phenomenal students in our church. Not all of, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. We have some incredible students in our church. And we have a church that represents all different generations. We have older people in our church and younger people in our church. And you want to know the, one of the best indicators of whether or not high schoolers will retain their faith? It's whether or not they know older people in the church care about them. And are invested in them. And so you don't have to go far to find someone who's a different generation and invest in them. It doesn't mean I'm calling everybody to serve every Sunday night in the youth group, although it may be that for some of us. But what about taking somebody out for coffee? Connecting with them at a service? Connecting with Josh about showing up to youth group every once in a while to invest in a student? You don't have to have all the answers. And students, speaking to you, what could it look like for you guys to have the humility to learn from people who are older than you? Like one of the things I'm learning and believe me, I know what it feels like to want to dismiss people who are older than me as like, you know, has-beens or whatever it might be. But that's like the reality of the church is there is no next generation and there is no has-been generation. We are all part of a generation that is the church here and now. And so what does it look like to invest in someone who's a different generation than you? And then the last one here, what does it look like to invest in someone who is just different than you? Maybe somebody who is a different race than you. Maybe someone who is a different socioeconomic status or comes from a fundamentally different background than you. What does it look like to invest in I mean, that's really what Paul is getting at in Galatians 2 here. He's calling Peter out for not being willing to invest in people who are different than him according to all of the world's standards. I believe that if we get really intentional and serious about these three relationships, that people are gonna see Jesus. That people are going to see Jesus and I don't want people to miss out on Jesus. I don't. And they're not going to see him through your opinions and your noise on social media. They're going to see him through people who get their hands dirty because they take Jesus seriously enough to let him cost them something. So as we close today, we're going to worship. And uh, this is a newer song, so you may not know it. But what I want you to do during worship is I want you to just think through those three different people. Maybe for you, a name comes to mind right away and you begin praying for them during worship. You can stay seated. You can come to the altar up here and kneel down if you want to pray, however you want to do it. But, but maybe names come right, right away to mind you. Maybe two of three or three of three. Maybe none of three come to mind you right away. If that's you, spend some time during this song praying that God will reveal opportunities to you this week to begin naming people that you want to become really intentional with over this next season. And we're going to spend the rest of the series equipping us as a church to do just that. So if you will, join me in prayer. God, uh, we're just overwhelmed by your presence. God, you're not just... Abstract or distant, but God, your incarnation teaches us that you are right here alongside us. Emmanuel, God with us. And your resurrection, your death, your burial, your ascension teach us that you are God for us, that you are for people. And God, we repent of ways in which maybe we've lost that plot in our own lives. Maybe we've obsessed over how we're against different things. Maybe we become complacent about people, God. May we never lose our passion for people. Because that's what it's all about. Seeing people known by you, coming to know you. So God, as we worship this morning, I pray that you will reveal to us names and faces and people. God, that you will provide opportunities for us to begin this journey of being four people together as a church. God, we love you. And the only reason we love you is because your word says you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.